North Idaho is home to beautiful mountains and scenic lakes, small-town tranquility, civil freedom, and the faithful Lutheran parish of Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church, located in Hayden, Idaho, near Coeur d'Alene. Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church is a proud sponsor of A Brief History of Power. If you like what you hear on Brief History, then you will love Blessed Sacrament where the Lord's Word is faithfully preached and Christ's body and blood are administered at every divine service. Whether you are visiting Idaho or considering moving to Idaho, wouldn't it be nice? Please join the saints of Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church for the Mass and Augsburg Academy Bible Study. Directions, service times, and much more information about this confessional, liturgical parish may be found at blessedsacramentlutheranchurch.com. Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church, Historic Christian Orthodoxy, the Evangelical Lutheran Faith in the Beautiful Inland Northwest. At 7,123 feet, you can find mountains soaring above you and rivers running swiftly in the valley below you, natural beauty of every kind. But our God is richer in his gifts than this. At 7,123 feet in Pagosa Springs, Colorado, you can also find God's word preached purely and his sacraments given out for your salvation at Our Savior Lutheran Church and School. Located off US 160, just west of downtown Pagosa, Our Savior offers your children a wonderful place to learn of Christ and his wisdom week in and week out and offers you the medicine of immortality Sunday in and Sunday out. Our Savior Lutheran School provides a Christ-focused classical education that enriches the child's soul with the best that has been thought and said to the glory of God. Whether you visit while vacationing or hunting in the beauty of the area, or whether you would like to join a group of faithful Lutheran Christians, Our Savior, Pagosa Springs, has what you're looking for. Divine service with Holy Communion is each Sunday at 9 a.m., and Bible class follows at 10.30. At more than a mile high, you will find Christ in all his glory in the midst of his people at Our Savior Lutheran Church and School, a proud sponsor of A Brief History of Power. Find out more at oslcpagosa.org. What do you think of when you hear the word college? Expensive? Liberal? Woke? Imagine a college that is affordable. A college that is unapologetically conservative and Lutheran. A college that won't take a dime of federal funding. A college that teaches the best of our Western heritage. A college where students grow in the Christian faith instead of leaving it behind. This is Luther Classical College. A college by Lutherans and for Lutherans. Visit our website, lutherclassical.org. Subscribe, become a patron, and join the thousands who are making Luther Classical College a reality. Dr. Coons, we get one from Taylor here. He, she, I'm not sure, actually, says, Could you please talk about gentle parenting? I'm not sure how this would have to do with history, maybe how education has changed and modern, postmodern philosophers view children as innocent, but I'd really like to know more about disciplining children in a Christian manner instead of validating a child's emotions and letting them always feel and be themselves in all situations. And um, I, I'm curious to hear this too. I think there's something very valuable in making sure that the child knows that they are allowed to be themselves even when they're wrong, but that doesn't mean one has to continue in such behavior. 
um, that if I'm angry because I don't like the punishment, like that's not unnormal. That's normal. You'd be angry. But then what do you do with that anger? How do you how do you appropriate your own emotions as a relic or an expression of the flesh? Uh, 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 face them. Yeah. We talked about last episode, self-control, learn to have self-control over them. And certainly most validation parenting these days is like effectively never say no kind of stuff, which which is a whole right. different issue. On the flip right. side, then you have the like, you better spank them hard or you're not a real Christian uh, approach, which maybe that's a straw man. I don't know if I've ever met anyone who quite went at it that way. Um, but yeah, yeah. So, so parenting and, and real discipline. I think that a lot of parenting theories and, and trends or even fads are a lot like school schooling theories or trends or fads. And you can often tell when a certain theory has been propagated for and generally by women because it will it will tend in the direction of permissiveness. And that is that is you'll find that kind of the less organized a homeschool is probably the more that something like a Charlotte Mason approach to schooling or, or even unschooling will prevail. There are exceptions. The exceptions are usually because of some really intense ideological motivation from the dad. So you'll get this in uh, left-wing homeschooling families where such exist. But otherwise, all things being equal, there's an idea and it's probably an idea that that women have because it may actually work on women. So things like gentle parenting or a similar theory, peaceful parenting, work on the idea that the major problem that you have in administering discipline to children is that they feel badly about it. That the, the major difficulty that you have, therefore, in raising children is the emotional dynamic between the parent and the child. And I say parent as a gender neutral term, because it's it's supposed to apply without respect to gender, whether the parent is male or female or the child is male or female, but it in fact doesn't. It's a theory that may or may not work between women and girls, okay? So the idea that I'm going to discipline you, I'm going to set a boundary, but then I'm going to say that, you know, you've crossed this boundary, so here's your punishment but then accompany it with a method and a tone and a voice that is utterly calm and whatever else, you know, irrespective of personality. That is really based on the idea that the worst thing that could happen is an emotional rupture between the parent and the child. And traditionally, discipline is not administered either in a family or a school for that reason. So if you look at, for instance, any pedagogical advice, whether for family or child, that you get in Lutheran discussion, usually for teachers, but it's always applied to parents too, because discipline is just kind of a continuum. If it's in the school, then it needs to be in the home. And if it's not in the home, it's not going to be in the school. The school teacher can't fix what is not there in the home. So if you have a home school, obviously the school teacher can't fix what is not there in the home for sure. But the discipline is really just administered as a set of practices rather than about a specific emotional dynamic relative to the child. So the practices are also usually, I think, people think that these are kind of niggling or kind of funny demands, like the child has to have his hair combed, or he has to have his shoes tied. And the reasons for that are, I think, what is something very insightful about children, as well as adults, although adults just kind of neglect these things as they usually do, 
is that if you don't take care of small details, you cannot know how to take care of big things. So you have to practice. I need you to learn how to be polite. I'm not going to police absolutely every word that comes out of your mouth, right? So there's there's a the, the other, I think, because this is built up over centuries, the other piece of wisdom here is whether you're a parent or a, or a teacher, you cannot police everything that anyone does. You don't want to, but it's also impossible. So if instead of policing every single word that ever comes out of my child's mouth, even when he's not with me, I will police the fact that he needs to chew with his mouth closed. The reason I'm going to do that is so that he can learn consideration for other people in this little detail so that he can then consider whether that principle applies in all of these other ways. So should I dress like this? Should I talk like this? Should I not brush my teeth or brush my teeth? So what you're doing is you're picking little things at any stage of life as soon as discipline is actually possible, because obviously under a certain age, they just cry because they need to cry. They're too little to understand anything. It's fine. But once they're able to actually comprehend discipline, have a sense of themselves and you and, and the world to some degree, then you're giving little boundaries and little things. And that's going to take care of other things so that you don't have to constantly be, you know, picking and hovering and, explaining to them why you still love them, but you have to do this and all of these things that, I mean, when people, <laughs> when people ask me how I have so many kids, they find it exhausting with two or three. I understand them and I believe them because the way that they parent is so energy intensive that it would be impossible to have seven children and to constantly be explaining to all seven of them, I love you, but you know, I, I have to do this right now. And, and I still respect you and everything. The idea of being yourself, I don't actually find to be, I, I find to be almost a matter of discovery by the parent and the child than something that I even need to reinforce. So the way that I think about this is that parenting is a lot like gardening. The seed has a certain potential to be whatever it is. I need to train it to be that in a healthy and fruitful way but I don't really have control over the fact that this is a pumpkin and this is a corn stalk, right? They're just going to be that. I just need it not to be diseased or destructive or to be bug ridden in the same way. My children, I discover who they are. I don't, <laughs> I don't control who they are. A lot of what I discover is extremely familiar because it's a lot like me or it's a lot like my wife or it's a lot like my father or my, my father-in-law or, you know, my mother-in-law, whatever, but I discover those things. So I don't, it's not something that I have to worry, like, is it going to be this? Are they going to be able to be themselves? Because the rest of my theory of discipline is not built around changing them in some sort of, I think, kind of creepy, you know, World War II, Cold War research program kind of way where I'm exercising psychological control over them. And we can talk about the links between those government research programs and child psychology throughout history. I mean, they're there. I'm not trying to change a corn stalk into a pumpkin. I'm trying to make sure that the corn stalk grows straight up and gets enough sun and stuff like that. But that all involves training and discipline spiritually and sometimes physically, if need be, for the child, just as it requires making sure that, you know, the corn stalk is growing in the right direction and everything like that. So I discipline is some literary 
in German related to the word for training. And I think that that's helpful because if I'm a trainer, then I'm working with what I have and trying to get it to go in a good direction. What am I training? I'm not, I, something that I think is almost invasive about the way a lot of people parent is that they are trying to control psychological and emotional dynamics. And you really can't do that. You don't have, I mean, at any given point in time, if you think about your own childhood, there are times when you hate what your parents are telling you, but later on you'll find out they're right, or you liked what they were doing for you. And you find out later that was bad for you. So this is a, this is an example where, like we talked about last time, I mean, emotional dynamics or emotions are a lot less valuable, both for knowing what to do and also knowing what's real than truth and objective situations. And if the objective situation is the child needs to learn not to, you know, you know, throw his muddy shoes everywhere in the house, then that's what has to be corrected. And then emotional dynamics can fall into line with that, or he needs to learn that his emotions are not as valid as the truth that you can't throw your muddy shoes everywhere, whatever, but you're teaching him to value truth over his own emotions when you're enforcing certain truths, certain boundaries that a lot of people are exhausted because they are trying to manage the emotional dynamic of their children. And it's simply not always possible. And it's even when it is possible, it may not even be necessary. So aiming for consistent principles in your parenting is, is key and seeing that discipline is a, a principle in and of itself. Yeah, right. Um, affirmation of personhood is also a principle, but not on the same high level, say, of discipline, um, or at least only in its relationship to discipline. That's and, right, yeah. Uh, kind of in the way that a father and mother are distinct, right, uh, in the eyes of the child. And then also to recognize that as the child grows, there are going to be differing levels of this. Uh, yeah. And an infant doesn't need quite the same discipline as a 13-year-old <laughs> and certainly will do well with lots of affirmation of of personhood, which doesn't mean you let them misbehave either. I mean, uh, one of the things that I think set up us right. as a family is we would take a three-month-old out in the narthex and talk to the kid. You will not act like this, right? And the kid doesn't know, but the kid does know. That's the crazy thing. Um but then, you know, at the same time, uh, with our teenagers, we work pretty hard to always make sure they know that we hear them, that we're not mm -hmm. dismissing what they're saying, right. yeah. even though yep. we disagree and are going right. to enforce a certain way anyway. So on, on both ends, they're, they're both principles. Um, I don't know that gentleness is a principle, though. Again, so, so affirmation of personhood. Gentleness is a style. Gentleness certainly is, is a Christian virtue um, that when you would act, you would not use full force at all times. But I don't know that's the way the word's really being used by those, uh, you know, calling for gentle parenting. I think they're maybe calling for, for soft parenting or even a lack of parenting. Yeah, and this is this is extremely common not just in the realm of child rearing but really in almost any realm that the only virtue recognized today is kindness or gentleness. Mm -hmm. And the problem there is that the ancient insight also the insight of the nature of the list of the fruit of the spirit is that virtues go together. So if I am not just, I'm unjust it doesn't actually matter that I was gentle or kind about my injustice. Or if I am cowardly, it doesn't matter that I was kind or gentle in my cowardice. These will produce in those who are watching me or listening to me, which is children, if I'm their father, 
also they will imitate my injustice or my cowardice. So these things go together. And that's also why discipline is not really a separate realm of life from child rearing generally, or it's not separate from the entire relationship you have to the child. The same, the same man that yells at my children, me, not to run across the street is the same one that does really nice things for them, right? And so that this is a complete picture of a life lived together, a significant part of which is discipline because the personhood is going to be there. And you're, and you're right that this especially changes as they get older, they need the, the demands of personhood and the reality of personhood changes in the same way that, you know, a, a corn stalk looks different in April than it does in August. So they need more. They, they, it, it actually gets a lot more intensive, I think, the older the children get rather than extensive in time, like when they need constant care as newborns. But whatever the demands of personhood are, the role of discipline is to make sure that that person does not live unto himself, which comes naturally. Discipline is not there to make you feel good or because you like it or just because you're kind of a harsh, demanding person. It's there so that this person does not live unto himself forever. It doesn't become self-obsessed and self-absorbed and selfish in every way. Bill writes regarding the intellectual fracturing. He says, my head was just dizzy trying to understand the middle section of the podcast. Well, he doesn't really, is that the episode title? I don't know. Yeah, uh, I think it was a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. Roughly the 25, 26 minute to 45 minute ish section. Okay. Uh, dealing with a lack of global unity and how easily we fracture as Lutherans. So that that just rings a bell for me as a, as a concept here. So the lack of global unity, yes, um, and the f- easy fracturing of Lutherans. Wisdom requires knowing what hills to die on and when. I see within my congregation the love of watered-down hymns increasing, more getty than hymns that have stood the test of time. Outreach-focused meaning get them in so we can give them, the, give them Jesus, uh, yet not taking action to consistently integrate someone into the Christian faith. I know that you guys are not saying go revivalist, but I'm still struggling to understand what exactly is being referred to regarding needless fracturing and where instead to spend the energy. I think I simply need more clarification. The examples left me confused and unsure of my own steps as I work to build community in my own area. Thank you. Um, Why don't you hit that one first? So needless fracturing in a church would involve a a focus on things that I am unable to discern are actually unnecessary. It's the same way when a marriage is falling apart and they are constantly talking about infractions that were committed three years ago and seven years ago and 15 years ago, and they can't understand how that fits into anything else or their own culpability in anything. So, I, I do not recall the entirety of this discussion that, that we had or the examples that we gave at the time. I would not say that it's needless fracturing to discuss whether your congregation is going to use hymns that are actually solid or not. That's actually something you you should fight for. But needless fracturing in any group is going to be usually a focus on rights and wrongs, rights that are absent where you feel they should be there and wrongs that were there that you feel should not have been there. And to focus on those over the reality of the other person's belonging. So what I mean by that is that it is always easy in any relationship, whether groups to groups, a person to a group like a congregation, 
or a person to a person like in a marriage, the absolute easiest thing for you to do at any given time is to make a list of things where they have fallen short or gone too far. And because that's easy, that comes first to any group under pressure. You can see this where a church, a region of the church that gets persecuted more or less incessantly in a way that is relatively easy to police because it's so urbanized is North Africa for roughly two centuries in the early church. And that is why they have so many schisms, most famously the Donatist schism, but other ones before that and after that. And now they don't exist. (laughs) Practically speaking, they were wiped out by Muslim invasion. And they fracture incessantly because issues get put in the absolute starkest terms and people betray one another. And then instead of trying to reintegrate one another after some kind of upheaval, they instead focus on the issue uh, that was, you know, under question and do not seek to restore the sinner necessarily. That's, that's the heart of the Donatist schism, for example, is that some people did bad things. How can we bring them back? And then others, likewise, in that schism, insist on bringing people back without respect to the things that they did that everyone admits were wrong. So this kind of fracturing is precisely what groups under pressure do. People do it in their marriages. That's why marriages often break up at signal points in life. The kids are out of the house or some major infraction has been committed. It's why congregations break up and become most unbearable to be in right before they die. It's why church bodies break up when they most need to stay together. Because when you're under pressure, the easiest thing to do is to force your way on other people who have less understanding or less care or less knowledge or whatever else. And so it it may be that a person is right about the wrongs committed or the ignorance displayed. But the question for a group is never just about the wrongs committed or the ignorance displayed. It's also about whether the group will endure. And it is impossible for groups to endure when ignorance and wrongs dominate how they think about each other's existence. I think that the example of revivalism entering Lutheran churches is an example of needless fracturing. You have the introduction of a, a external force, a theological movement, a pragmatic and even charismatic movement into a body of people who in theory share an identity purporting to be the salvation of that body, uh, if only it will be adopted by all, that leads directly to the schisming of that body, both congregationally and, and uh, synodically, uh, a, a true fracture. So I think it's a good example of uh, of what the kind of thing that we should not pursue ourselves anymore. Like that one's now here; it's done, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. What do you do now? Um, now that we have three bodies or four bodies in this one body, what what do you do now? Um, I also uh, think about the responses I've heard to the 2020 reactions, which goes something like this. Everyone was in different contexts. We all responded differently. We just need to be okay with that. And, you know, full stop. Not, mm-hmm. what yeah. about next time? Not, can we repent if we were wrong? 
and forgive each other and move forward in a greater unity. Right. Right. And so again, I see a, a fracturing kind of de facto by an unwillingness to disagree with each other. Yeah. Right. Publicly, basically, right? Yeah. And, and to, yeah. And to yeah. reckon no. with that. Yeah. Right. Go ahead. Yeah. Well, I mean, just the other day, I was teaching on the strong and the weak in First Corinthians, which is where a lot of this heads. So, especially chapters eight through eleven, and this guy says to me. And I had to keep a straight face because if you know me personally, you know that it's sometimes difficult for me to keep a straight face. I think I find life very amusing very often. So yeah, we all looks agree at me. you smile way too much. <laughs> he looks at me and he's saying with a straight face, he goes, what is with these young guys that don't think women should work outside the home? And they're all against birth control and they and they love the one year lectionary. And I'm just kind of like... <laughs> Uh, you know, it's like the awkward monkey meme. Like, I don't really know what to say. So, but what I said was, you know, and whatever, like he has, he has no sympathy with any of that. Right. And, and he thinks of himself as a very Orthodox Lutheran pastor and blah, blah, blah. But he's never considered whether working at home in second Timothy has any relationship to his family's financial arrangements. That's fine. That's, that's fine. That's fine. In, in a way, right. It's, it's fine. So what I said was, well, but if we don't have an open discussion of these things, you're not going to get any closer to understanding why these these guys that you are complaining about think this, right? And they might not hold every position that they hold for the absolute best reason or have a Bible passage to support what they're thinking or, or whatever, but you don't know that unless you talk. So if we go through whatever, you know, the advent of women working outside the home since the 1970s when most American women thought the fact that Soviet women worked outside the home was very strange and vice versa. Soviet women kind of being where American women are now or anything. Okay. Let alone COVID, let alone how many churches were decimated, let alone how another guy I was talking to earlier this week said he has the equivalent of an entire service at this church that has multiple services. He could fill another service every weekend with the numbers of people who don't come back. Okay. If we don't talk about that, then it's not going to make it better or we're not going to learn anything from being like, we're agreeing not to talk about that, right? So the valuing of silence or or the pleasant, the, the pleasantries of silence, especially over truth is going to kill me in the long run because it makes me unable to learn anything from my past, which the Bible wants me to use as both a source of repentance but also as a source of wisdom gained from experience, right? The reason the father instructs the son in Proverbs is because the father has gone through more things. <laughs> the son doesn't tell the father because the son doesn't know what he has not experienced. So if I'm going to not look at experience and, and both repent, but also profit from it, then I will remain perpetually like the son who, who just knows nothing about the world even though God is giving me experience to profit from. I think some of the conversation probably also hovered around knowing who our enemies are, knowing who our friends are, recognizing that that is not a, an entirely bipolar reality, but there's a, mm -hmm. there's a spectrum there. And so like in my local town, the, the Roman Catholic priest and I probably mm -hmm. should get along kind of, you know, yeah. like, like we have some of the same goals for right. the town um, and, and on the same vein, so you mentioned one-year lectionary, like 
it's superior, sure thing. Like you're still in fellowship with people that use three year, right? Like that's not a fellowship <laughs> divisive issue, right? Right. <laughs> right and, right. and so it's kind of on that. Like I, yeah. and, and, and then I think my comments were along the lines that it just seems like, um, Lutheran church, Missouri synod populace, us are just doofuses when it comes to applying this recognition. We just, we just can't tell. And we just shoot at everybody. Like you come near and I just like, I'm just going to shoot you, you know, intellectually. And, um, and it's, it's <laughs> mind boggling to me because it, it is a needless fracturing when yeah. I think as a whole, we do have a strong core, even though, again, the issue of uh, very lukewarm core uh, is there. Um, but there is a there, there's a there's a strong spirit within at least the clergy roster of the LCMS that you know believes the Bible's true. And oh yeah, you know, yeah. And, and there's a lot of church bodies that would love that, no. or, or at least yeah, the Catholic priest can't count on that. Yeah. Right. I mean, if the Catholic priest goes and tells the guy at the parish next to him, I believe the Bible is true. The guy at the parish next to him might have just, you know, taken his rainbow flags down at the end yeah. of June. I mean, yeah. Yeah. who even knows? So you don't understand until it's gone how much how much you were given. So you could try right now to actually use the things that you were given and also to hold especially your own sense of things. I don't even mean the truths that you know but the way that you got there more lightly than you do, right? I think part of the reason that people are unforgiving with each other and 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 ungracious, just, just harsh, okay? Just harsh is because they think that their opinion and its truth are dependent upon asserting it in the way that they do, both with the words that they do, but also with the emotions that they do when they assert it or when they think it or when they refute it. And the problem there is that that requires everyone not only to believe the same thing, great, that's great in a church, that's wonderful in a family, but also to get to that place in the same way. And the problem is if you teach enough human beings the same things, you realize sooner or later, they don't all get there the same way at the same speed. And so if the priority is the group and its cohesion rather than everyone's agreement with you right away when you say something, then you have to have some patience. That's that's really the virtue of anyone who lives in a group with anybody is, is a patience and a calm that allows people time and space to get somewhere. Now, if they don't want to go there at all, they just say, no, I reject that. I'm not going there. That's a problem. No question. That's totally a problem. But give them the opportunity to say that before you force them to say something that they're not even ready to say. Now, the issue you brought up earlier of young men and women who value traditional, you might call them biblical descriptions of what are now called gender, but once was called the sexes, the right. roles. Um, right. That's an issue that, again, like, can you be patient with someone who is 78 and just goes to church and doesn't care? Versus uh, someone who is, you know, 22 and, and won't consider these things. Right. And, and John kind of asks a roundabout question that's not disconnected. It's one line here, <laughs> uh, which is, uh, should we just reconsider arranged marriages? <laughs> so I never know what people mean when they say arranged marriages. So it, because there's arranged marriage like often immigrants practice both today in the United States, but also sometimes in the past, 
like, here is a girl in your village, please go home and get her and bring her to America. That's that's one kind of arranged marriage, like you've never met the person before. That's not that common in Western history, except for the nobility who have other life goals in mind besides the happiness of the household. Much more common historically would be the idea that you have a certain pool of people available to you and you accept your parents' guidance and in some places uh, your parents' choice from that pool. That's pretty common. The role of the parents in the marriage is historically much greater than it is today and probably should be a lot greater than it is today. That is not necessarily the same thing as arranged marriage, but if my if my children's social and personal contacts are to some degree arranged by me, yeah, I, that's a much more arranged marriage in its own way than I'm going to grow up, I'm going to move to a major metropolitan area my parents don't live in, and I'm going to find someone, which is kind of the when Harry met Sally is perhaps one of the more wholesome versions of this portrayed in the movies. And that's kind of the common idea. So arrangement has varying meanings, I guess I'd say, and I'm fine with certain versions, other versions. I mean, I'm not running some sort of, you know, centuries long eugenics project with my children. So I'm not going to try to, you know, find another Habsburg for them to marry. That kind of arrangement has been reserved generally for non-Western societies or for the nobility in Western societies. Yeah, so you're suggesting that there, there's a spectrum of parenting here again, yeah. which, which uh, it, there, there's the mail order bride scenario, uh, <laughs> and and then there's like dads involved in the process, right? Yeah, right. And I think I think maybe the most important piece out of all of that, I, I think we could say more about any of it, but that is this newfangled idea of I'm going to put you in a cannon and fire you out into the middle of chaos. <laughs> and somewhere out there, there's right. a shooting star with your name written on it. And you're going to meet and you're going to have sex and then get married because you're in love. And that's how it's supposed to be. Right. And that that insanity is so new historically. I mean, I think I think there was there was licentiousness in the past, but it wasn't like licentiousness. Licentiousness is the path to love. I don't I don't, I don't think the ancients quite saw it that way. Um, maybe they did. No. Maybe I'm no, missing something. Didn't. But I, I think this is a, a really bizarre twist, literally twist, uh, on things. Yeah. And the, the 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 system that we have obviously doesn't work. I mean, there are things that have also gone by the wayside. A lot of discussion regarding revivalistic worship concerning the National Youth Gathering recently. Something that the, the Missouri Senate has allowed utterly to lapse that was actually productive of marriages without having to pay to go to college was Walther League. And significantly, we haven't had that since just about the time that we plateaued in membership. So kids kids could get together, they would do things like put on plays or, you know, have Bible quizzes, kind of nice activities together. There's a Walther League manual you can find maybe somewhere. But there was a story in my first congregation of how the pastor's daughter was uh, proposed to somewhat famously and surprisingly at a Christmas Eve Walther League gathering at the Parsonage. These things cost basically no money, and they existed for the purpose of the furtherance of the church. And, and she was not the only couple in the congregation 
that had been married via Walther League. So these kinds of things are previous generations' wise attempts to in some manner arrange life so that it is productive, not only of fun in the present, um, I guess maybe we do that, although lots of kids are depressed, not just fun in the present, but something wonderful for the future, both for the family and the church. I think we can probably swing back around to marriage and some of that uh, when we to, to conclude this episode. Uh, we have one more question, but we're also going to have to take a quick break. We'll be right back. So Marla writes in and she says this, uh, love your podcast and learn so much from it. Emphasis on the so. Happily, I've been doing much of what you suggest for quite a while. Here is something new. Maybe you could talk about it where it could lead regarding transhumanism or some other devilish worldly ideas. And there is a link here to an article from Yale News regarding restoration of cell organ functionality in pigs after death. Uh, transhumanism is definitely a topic I don't hear enough about from other Lutherans. Um, and uh, as I mentioned recently being at a youth event and a lot of questions in a Q&A and there was a question about how to deal with friends who are LBGTQ+. And uh, as valuable as the answer was, what I didn't hear said was, first, you need to know it's a religion. First, you need to know that this is worship. First, you have to realize that this is an ideological worldview that is detrimentally opposed to everything that we love about reality. And then you need to love them as a person afterwards. Um, and so uh, to, to reckon with the, the de demonic level of uh, the Philistine Baal worship that's going on around us, um, <laughs> the irony that it's in pigs, too, uh, that's great. That's great. What do you think, Dr. Kuntz? So the, the linked article, maybe we can throw in the show notes for this episode, but it, it's, a, it's about research into pigs, which they're usually doing when they're trying to implement something into human beings eventually because of pigs relative biological resemblance to us on the molecular level. So that's that's why this is significant. And it involves change in especially brain function. Key cellular functions were active in many areas of the pig's bodies, including in the heart, liver, and kidneys, and that some organ function had been restored through this perfusion of the brain. For instance, they found evidence of electrical activity in the heart, which retained the ability to contract. Uh, we were also able to restore circulation throughout the body, which amazed us, one of the scientists said. This is after the pig's heart has stopped beating. And so the the issue here is <laughs> they're trying, you know, in, in having these sort of Frankenstein pigs whose cellular and organ function has been restored after death through technology they're they're kind of pre-gaming or providing a you know a preseason you know look at what they want to do or think that they could do in human beings and there's a little warning at the end of the article which is very common in these sorts of things that we want to be very careful or we want to have a lot of monitoring and something to notice about any project in modernity whether transhumanism transsexuality whatever attempts to go beyond nature, a concept that we we keep returning to and I, and I want to talk a little bit about. Any attempt to go beyond it is always going to be hedged, certainly at first, as reasonable and calm with decided parameters that are going to sound safe to those who are who are reading this or or listening to things like this or watching things like this. Because everyone 
gets a sort of creepy feeling in seeing these things or reading about them. So they know that that disgust reflex exists in human beings. It exists in men who see two men kissing. It exists in people who think about human beings having some sort of animal parts given to them, infused in them, you know, grafted onto them. It exists in people thinking about human beings who are not in some definitive way human because they have been utterly engineered or engineered out of their humanity. So anything that tries to go contrary to nature, people who are interested in living or researching contrary to nature are aware that we are disgusted by things. So they need to first convince you that this is reasonable or that if it's not reasonable, if it just sounds wild, like the title of this article does sound, then what they need to assure you of is that there are basics, you know, parameters around this that are going to keep it inside a nice little yard. It won't get out in the wild. They won't run wild with this. I'm not sure that that's utterly or always disingenuous. I think that they themselves are scared of what they find sometimes, or some of them are. You see dissension, for example, about the employment of nuclear weapons among people within the Manhattan Project. Not everyone wanted utterly to annihilate our our enemies in the Second World War. Oppenheimer did. (laughs) Others did. But not everyone just wanted a sort of potentially genocidal use of what they were all researching together. So when you're dealing with something like transhumanism, people have all kinds of different reasons for this. Some of them have an explicitly religious interest in it because like Mormons who have a fairly large group of people devoted to transhumanism, they have pre-existent religious or ideological reasons for being okay with the alteration in certain potentially permanent ways of human beings biochemically or mechanically or, or whatever the case may be, because the notion of a created nature or orders of creation is unimportant to them religiously or ideologically. Because for instance, in Mormonism, we're all seeking godhood, literally, anyway. In other cases, and I think in most cases, people are not looking explicitly for godhood. And this is in the nature of something that I have yet to have a single name for. But it's that when people are not Christians in the modern West, whether their ancestors were or not, but when they're not Christians, their way of not being Christian is not terribly self-consciously religious. They have, they have really no cognitive, these things are masked from them. Traditionally, religious things such as a search for immortality or a sense of never wanting to die or a desire for forgiveness cannot be framed in vocabulary they don't have. So they themselves don't think of cryogenic research or a desire to appropriate stem cells from aborted children in order to provide greater growth to certain areas of their of their lives, or maybe even regrowth of organs, potentially. They don't see these things as religious, and therefore they can't see them as demonic. They see them as practical or material because one of their assumptions is that material things are all that there are. That would be why you would want infinite life extension of material existence such as you know it, So one way to think about this, and I think maybe to explain this, especially to 
family members who are aware of this or co-workers who also read articles like this and may or may not agree with it or may or may not be creeped out by it is to really spell out for people what a person is looking for. So if Ted Williams, the baseball player, has himself cryogenically frozen, what is Ted Williams actually looking for, right? He's looking for infinite times, you know, waking up in his home in California and, I don't know, reading the morning paper and drinking coffee. I mean, you have to spell out for people how disappointing or pedestrian their understanding of life is because they are so materialistic, because their sense of good life involves consumption of products and buying things and watching things and going out to eat. And when you spell these things out, you hopefully make it just a little bit clearer the futility or the sadness of infinite material life extension, which is being sought through transhumanism. Okay. In addition to that, there are people who may not be religious and may not be utterly ignorant of their own, let's say, quasi-religious motivations. There are also people who are very ideologically motivated, but very anti-religious. So they may be pursuing some sort of evolutionary self-direction through various transhumanistic means. I have run into people like this in learning about the nutritional theories and the just general biochemical energy theories of Ray Peet. There are a lot of people who are into Ray Peet's advice about nutrition, who I think just want to go on living forever somewhere, you know, near Santa Barbara, California or something. They just want to drink the right amount of orange juice and have the right good cholesterols. And then they're just going to, I don't know, sit there forever and yeah, go out to eat. I don't even know, maybe drink some wine. I don't know. I don't know if that sounds appealing to you, Jonathan. But, I, was, um, I was just thinking of wasting away at Margaritaville. Is what came yeah, I mean, no, I think I think that is it. And it, there is something just so not 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 just boring, but but sinister in its inanity. I mean, re- really, all I can imagine in life is a good meal at like an upscale Italian restaurant. And I mean, is this, is this what I'm is this what I'm getting up in the morning for? So these things have to be spelled out, but some people are aware of this and they are trying really to take in their hands their own sense of where human beings came from. Therefore, to exercise greater control of consciousness over where we are going. And this is not really new. It's that certain scientific resources and availabilities are there that weren't there, for instance, when we were talking about raising consciousness or awakening to the age of Aquarius 55 years ago. So what you have is a confluence of new age ideas, if you want to put it in a, in really a, a religious sense, with certain abilities, especially via genetic research, linked now to research into human longevity, that were that that was not available in 1967, but structurally the ideas are identical. A place to go if you're interested in these sorts of connections is especially there's a there's a large book about the history of the Esalen Institute E S A L E N so not Anthony Esalen but the Esalen Institute in California and the linkage is there between quote scientific research even things that are widely government funded 
especially into human beings, human physiology, human psychology. And the combination of that with the expansion of consciousness via both psychedelic drugs as well as new age religion usually I, I imported one of these guys maybe directly from india i think i heard one of these yeah. guys well, interview I mean, once. Like joe they, rogan yeah go ahead it might have been on tim ferris like they claim real uh, uh psychic powers right yes they, they, they work do. with the cia and they were like doing spy work and all this kind of stuff yes and they yeah. and they did and and a lot of these things there is, there is a particular nexus of these things in a with within the government especially during and after the second world war a, per, a person on the left who's actually cognizant of these things is the is the author thomas pynchon who shows you that nexus in the novel gravity's rainbow which was popular when it came out with the counterculture in the 1970s but one of the things that you'll notice about the left is that they usually only can learn one of the three lessons they're trying to teach themselves at any given time. So they learned, you know, for instance, they, they learned that, uh, you know, taking drugs would expand your mind. They didn't learn the lessons from their own people on the left self-consciously, such as Pynchon or Ted Kaczynski, who was involved with some of these experiments at Harvard. I mean, he was one of the subjects of the experiment. They did not learn what that that ingestion of consciousness raising substances would do to a person's soul. <laughs> so they only they only remember one of the three lessons, one of the four lessons, whatever. So to me, that is that is both the most interesting, but also the most sinister part of transhumanism, because religiously motivated people will will never be anything like a majority of people actually involved in research into infinite, potentially infinite human longevity. And people who are unaware even of their own motivations will also just be driven around by whatever is being promoted. So maybe they'll take MDMA or DMT now because they heard about it on Joe Rogan. But 20 years ago, they never would have done something like that. They would have just continued drinking Michelob and just thinking that's, you know, maybe smoking marijuana illegally at the time. It's the people who are self-consciously motivated and aware of where they're going and of where we've been that you really have to watch out for. So I'm much more interested when Joe Rogan brings somebody on like this, who is basically getting paid to be interested in these things, than I am in the fact that, you know, a 15 year old is somewhere interested in transhumanism. Because very similarly to the mainstreaming of homosexuality, it is an approach to some to a, a kind of novelty about life. The ancient world didn't practice homosexuality the way we do. They didn't say that it was the same thing as being married. Okay. So some of the novelties of modern life are what they are precisely because of the sort of self-motivation and self-justification of their most fluent and affluent practitioners. So you, you want to watch the people who are trying to tell others why this needs to happen, tell others why this is a new direction in human existence those are the people to watch. So I'm very interested in those people. And you'll see those people pop up in weird places. So Yuval Noah Harari, now kind of obviously linked to Klaus Schwab and the World Economic Forum, he first popped up in discussion of transhumanism. Okay, so these people don't come out of nowhere, and their interests are linked to one another. I'd love to have you keep going on this. Um, one, so I... Mm. 
the idea that for the average postmodern globalist inspired heathen uh, that they're not religious, that this isn't a religion, that they're not worshiping when they drink their margarita on the Santa Ana coastline. Yeah. Um, to me, that's one of the most fascinating pieces because this is where uh, Alice in Modern Land really is the upside down, uh, the flipping of all things on his head, the true counter nature that we have become so spiritually inept, so intellectually blinded that the religion, which is actively religious all around us, no longer looks that way to us. And you have these individuals who will make these, these claims to be working against religion and for atheism and whatnot. And yet the behavior patterns that they and those who follow them in the world that is being built on their, on their mindset follows is not distinct from the yeah. worst kinds of destructive paganism of the ancient age, self-eating paganism, self-destructive paganism of the ancient age. Um, and so to me, I, I find that fascinating because I want to pierce the cloud, right? right. Like yeah. I, I want to be able to, and, and sometimes I get that hint. I drive by the bank. I'm like, yeah, that looks like a temple. And I drive by the restaurant. Oh, sure looks like a temple. Just look at it. You know, and, and, but it's, it's hard though, because you have to, I mean, I mentioned red pill last episode. It's, it's a great metaphor, but mm-hmm. like, like it doesn't seem to work. You can't actually take the red pill and get out. Like you always get pulled back into the, to the, the surreal dream, right? And um, this conversation, though, is is grasping at uh, that there is there is much more unseen going on around us that could be seen because it's not actually hidden, but that we've managed to yeah. to blind ourselves to somehow and finding the right Rosetta to be able to to regularly perceive it is is what I'm after. So, yeah. Yeah. Words mere words can ma- can matter a lot in something like this because for example when the when the population of Japan gets surveyed a a minuscule percentage of that popul of that entire country reports itself as as being religious and that is because in Japanese religion and religious have to do with being either christian or a practitioner of one of the new religions that that are a minuscule percentage, both Christianity with the new religions of the Japanese population, that does not preclude the vast majority of the Japanese population from participation in what is quite obviously an ancient form of paganism in Shinto, even just in what they do at the new year uh, with temple visitation and the search for good luck and in, in things like starting a business or, or, or taking a test. So where there is not vocabulary, there cannot be cognizance. Vocabulary doesn't equal reality. It equals capacity to have cognizance of reality. So if I am sacrificing my whole life toward my goal of turning into a different biological sex, or I am sacrificing this relationship with my father for the sake of this job that I have, or whatever the case may be, then you then you begin to learn that religion is not necessarily entirely the things of which I'm cognizant or for which I have a vocabulary. It is especially in the nature of my behavior and my motivations for my behavior of which I am, unless generally someone makes me aware, I am unaware. And I think one of the the demonic wonders of the modern world, especially in the West, is that what is called by sociologists secularization 
is simply existence without vocabulary. It, it is like you become a two-year-old child and you have no way to describe your, you know, as a child does not the nature or the reasons for your disappointment that you're not getting what you're getting. So you are obviously incapable of prayer because you've never been taught to pray. You're incapable of praying because you've never been taught to believe. You're incapable of believing because you think that believing is something that stupid people do or weird holy rollers do. So what happens here is that you lose your vocabulary, but with your vocabulary, you lose a lot of other things too. And you lose really above all the, the capacity to exist as a human being because you you can't even really bring to expression. And this is to me the sadness of life defined by going out to eat and and going on vacation and and then you die is that you don't even really have words. I'm not even saying you need to have a word for the nature or the necessity of blood atonement for sin. I'm saying you don't even really have a way of expressing why it is that your children matter to you. So even emotions that exist deeply in human beings, apart from any social or religious structure or vocabulary, you don't even have words for it because no one's taught you that you were made by God or, or children are a heritage of the Lord or none of that's there. So it's, I mean, the, the sadness is human beings going through life incapable, incapable of stating the truth about themselves and and therefore also the truth about God. The consumerism as religion then um, makes me think of a biblical image of the locust. And I don't think it's, I don't think it's just ironic that the the current attempt of various environmentalist movements to paint humans as a type of uh, destroying plague upon the earth it is like coming about at the same time that we yeah. increasingly are made into that by the consumerism. Yeah. Nor do I think it's just an accident that the horde of demons out of the abyss are also uh, referred to as, as locusts in, in Revelation. Um, I don't know that, that that gives us anywhere to go next, uh, other than to recognize, as we've hinted at multiple times in the last two episodes especially, that there is a demonology at work right now that uh, while we don't necessarily need to learn to see it, because that's not really the biblical goal, um, we must learn to fight against it uh, with the weapons of warfare that we've been given which I, I don't remember which question you were answering, but you used a reference to Romans 12 and the transformed mind uh, that the Christian's life is one of a reforming, a metamorphosizing of the intellect, the spirit, the vocabulary, um, yeah. the person, uh, being right. able to see, to name um, to redeem those human qualities of stewarding the earth that begin with self-control, uh, leads out into uh, the divine hierarchy of the family, and then becomes a, a reason to be that is, uh, it does not, not include eating dinner, um, no. but it's so much right. more than, than just eating dinner. In fact, table fellowship itself becoming something that ultimately uh, results in, in the altar of, of right. our Lord, right? So, um 
yeah, I don't know if you can take any of that. So, yeah, well, because the the one of the issues that a, that a Christian has with materialism as a philosophy is the valuation of the body over the soul. And that when you get, you know, let's say the initial apostolic preaching in the book of Acts, you have the note that this many souls were saved. The reason for that is not that Christianity is immaterial. It becomes very interested in material because that material is created and sanctified and even eventually incarnate in God himself. The issue is not that material is evil. It's that material is not primary. Primary is the soul because it is the soul that either communes or does not commune with the eternal God. That's the issue. And what happens in transhumanism is that one of the one of the prejudices of modernity, which is a denigration of the soul, that is, the soul may be treated however, and this this also involves modernity's playing wild play with get certain educational givens of the past, precisely because that modernity is okay playing with souls. So you have an explosion of varieties of educational theories precisely because we can experiment with the souls even the souls of children rather than follow well-trodden paths to raising a, a child who shows respect for other human beings or whatever the soul is denigrated the body is wildly overvalued the body becomes everything so attraction to the body becomes the definition of whether you are in love becomes a definition of what marriage is becomes a definition of what divorce should be wild overvaluation of money becomes overvaluation of attainment of material success becomes obsession with material success becomes raping and pillaging even your own country via your investments and your tax choices even to the denigration of the lives of the people that you live with in your own neighborhood becomes the you know wild and in America unprecedented equality of ways of living that we're now seeing as if we were, and indeed maybe already are a third world country. So obsession with the body over the soul, and then necessarily research into extending and improving the body's life by any means possible. And whenever you see a problem like transhumanism, the thing to see also is that a problem exists in a given person or, or, or place or society, probably on some spectrum with a set of other related problems. So if, you know, the person in my congregation is not a transhumanist, he is shocked when at the age of 74, he gets cancer. <laughs> he doesn't actually believe that death is a reality for sinners. He believes that he should materially live forever, at least until the age of his expectation. So if I expect to live to 85, then if I'm dying at 74, I'm shocked. I should be shocked that I'm still alive at 74. I, at my age, my birthday is in six days, should be shocked that I am still this healthy at my age because I don't deserve any of it. Okay, so that that has to do with valuation of the soul and the soul's prerogatives and also the soul's creator and maker and sustainer over what the body expects or desires or wants. And it's because the body is presumptively way more important and real than the soul that we have both transhumanism, but also 74-year-old Christians who are shocked that they could indeed one day die. That is one of the most bizarre experiences I've had as a pastor, I got to say. It's just, and, and I, I don't know that I'm immune to it. I'm not claiming to be. Um, but, you know, whatever's in the water 
that has so so covered our ability to see where we are. Again, it gets back to the same idea of, of not seeing that there's a temple in every corner, um, not seeing the absolute threat to our bodies uh, that this planet, in fact, presents at all times. And, uh, and you do hear a little bit about, like, isn't it wonderful that God gave us science and medicine, now we all get to live longer, um, which... I get it just seems sort of um, flippant almost as I think about it, but I think I think it's genuinely meant. About not being disingenuous or genuine does not make something good or evil, though. Um, but it, just the the surprise, the shock when life is what the Bible says life is, that's experienced by us as Christians. It gets back to just how much the wool is over our eyes, um, how much the story that we are daily participating in. Uh, is not run by the story of the scriptures, but is run by the mainstream feed, whatever version you're getting of it. It's all the mainstream feed. Um, It's all the demons' religion and what they're pushing. And, uh, uh, you know, for my part, again, uh, unplugging becomes so much of a necessity when it comes to the need to free the mind, to have the time to be in the Bible, to consider its words, to have conversation about it with others who also believe and care about these things. Um, and uh, it, it's not just a matter of not having the technical tools manipulate me, um, but it is a matter of recapturing that that natural reality that God gave us, from which, you know, plumbing, I'm thankful for it. Dennis, I'm really glad, um, but at what cost? And uh, to at least recognize that uh, that cost doesn't have to be entirely paid by my soul in giving up the ghost, um, but that uh, I can take a stand with regard to um, my, my spiritual diet, right? And that all of these various inputs and mediums that we're, that we're hearing from, a medium, n- no joke of a word there, by the way, um, that we're hearing from, um, they, they are not our friends. Um, they are not on the team we're on. And they are, in that way, a part of the other religion. There's only two. The other religion in the entire world. Dr. Pieper, volume one, two religions. Uh, the other religion is out there uh, striving to destroy our souls. Um, and uh, it, is, it is high time that uh, we, who are at least shocked that others are shocked at things that shouldn't shock us, uh, stop being shocked ourselves and, yeah. and just start to stand. It's, it's also perhaps helpful to note that transhumanism originates the word is coined by by julian huxley that's that's albus's slightly more scientific much more internationally involved brother julian in order to capture something that much like the discussion of climate change exists as a certain scientific consensus or or line of scientific research in order to determine the present right so prophets futurologists in this case whether futurologists of climate or futurologists of human or what are called openly now post-human technologies or post-human existence. The the academic journal devoted to transhumanism is called the Journal of Post-Human Studies. Post-human sounding a lot like posthumous, honestly. (laughs) Um, These things exist. Prophets preach so that the present changes. They don't just preach to foretell. And so futurology exists, whether about climate, in order to change your behavior now, you're not allowed to have a farm, you're not allowed to eat meat, 
you're not allowed to drive a car that burns fossil fuels and has a lot more power than an electric car in order to change your behavior now. So that's also the role of transhumanism is to change your understanding of yourself now, long before you're getting to a point where somehow there's a, you know, there's the LOE and they're hyper evolved. And then there are the serfs and they serve the higher class that has access to post-human realities or technologies. Even if none of that comes to pass, one of the points of saying such things or spreading awareness of such things is to change people's sense of themselves now so that they value the body over the soul now, among other things. That gets back to the normalization idea. You didn't use that word earlier, but um, you know, with regards to radical things that they want us to eventually take as normative, that they right. insert as jokes, as stories, as side pieces, um, which I mean, we got about five minutes left here. Uh, it brings to mind a piece from the New York Times in the recent weeks, uh, promoting the potential for cannibalism at various times as being virtuous in human existence. And um, I saw, I think it was... I think it was Mashid Nawaz uh, actually did a rundown of that was not the first time such an article has been published in the last couple of years. There's been a number of those dropped from a variety of sources uh, around around the Western world. Um, and again, like uh, to see the tactic, the tactic is to sway you by force of, of tide over time. Yeah, right. Right. Um, and so what we need is our own tide pushing back. And as we've stated again and again through this podcast, uh, the lore of the scriptures, the fundamental reality of the good goads, uh, the words that are like well-driven nails that, that give you the language that is being stolen from you, that give you the vocabulary of the religious life, um, that, is, that is of essence to our life together. And it is not law heavy to say that without it, uh, we will perish. Uh, in fact, it is, it is a true belief in the reign of the Christ, uh, the King of peace to insist that, uh, that well, his word reigns, um, to seek first the kingdom is to have all things, uh, to live by more than bread is, is to live on every word that he has spoken. I, I have sometimes wondered what it was that not only motivated, but spurred the prophets that Jeremiah confronted to say that there was peace, peace when there was no peace. And there are a couple of things you can tell from some of the stories. There's the the comfort Hezekiah takes in knowing that in his days there will be peace, even though things will be destroyed afterward. So there is a, a blithe disregard for future generations that would motivate people to remain ignorant. There's also, however, I think the desire to continue your sense of normalcy, which is so important to most people's daily functioning, that the world will remain comprehensible in the ways familiar to them, that would induce you to say, well, we're not going to actually have the city destroyed. We're not going to actually have a war. We're not going to see the paper of record you know, which is so important and so longstanding that its index is kind of essential for doing research, especially on national politics in American history. We're not going to see them advocating cannibalism or saying that there are situations in which it's comprehensible or, or, or needful. And the reason to say that is is not because you're stupid or something. I, I don't like when that's said because I just don't think it's true. I think often the smartest people are the most evil. 
and they're not stupid. It it is that it it is a kind of self-enforced blindness. You take the knives and you stick them into your own eyeballs because that would be better than admission of fault in the present. That that would just be preferable. So you would rather blind yourself than change. That I think is really at the heart of our spiritual sickness in our post-human secularized existence is the desire simply to put the knives in our own eyeballs instead of changing because change is very painful and it's certainly painful corporately even more so and, and even more with even greater difficulty than it is individually in repentance so i think that's where that's coming from and it's why we continue to slide into such places as articles about cannibalism or articles about how we don't need anybody to be silent in a library because it's racist to be silent that was also in the times this past week or maybe it was the new york or same thing so for these purposes that's why we see the slide that we do because i think change is just too painful so you're just going to say peace peace where there is no peace with just over two minutes left on our zoom call uh give us some hope to close this thing out <laughs> Well, you know, I mean, the hope the hope was never in people. And if you're not engaged in naive narcissism, then you knew that. So don't worry about it. Other people are going to be disappointing. And sometimes they're disappointing on enormous scales. Let's make this distinction. Collapse is not the same thing as extinction. So if you are in institutions that are collapsing, or you are in a family that is collapsing, or a church that is collapsing, or perhaps as perhaps we all are in a civilization that is collapsing collapse is not equivalent to extinction that's why you can trace human beings and even uh, they do genetic research in connection with certain collapses that have occurred but those human beings and their lineages survived those droughts and tsunamis and everything else so you have to realize that you are planning, as we said a couple of episodes back, for something far beyond collapse. And that's what you're building for. You're not you're not building to keep everything standing that's currently standing. A lot of it's horrible. Let it fall down. You are building for centuries from now, long after that collapse, and maybe the one after that, because you are planning not to be made to go, nor to go extinct. You are planning for life. You're listening to A Brief History of Power. You know where to find us, or you wouldn't be here.